My name is Matt. I'm Omer. And you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast, an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. Oats for Breakfast is a member of the Harbinger Media Network. If you like our show, you may also want to check out the other podcasts on the network. You can do so by going to harbingermedianetwork.com. Our guest today is Julian von Bargen. Julian is a writer, researcher, teacher, and doctoral candidate in the Department of Political Science at York University. We're going to be chatting with him about a book he co-edited titled Challenging the Right, Augmenting the Left. Welcome back to Oats, Julian. He froze. Am I frozen? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're frozen. (laughs) Damn it! (laughs) Hang on, let me just uh, stop my video and then just start from... It looks like it's it's recovered, so... uh... Yeah, it's working fine. So, um, what are we supposed to be talking about here? Um, Julian, you wrote a book. No, you didn't write it. You edited a book. Uh, I edited a book, uh, or I was a co-editor even, you know, we had a strong team, there was four of us. And it came out, I mean, it's been sort of, uh, it was a long process to get the book out. And then, of course, finally, when it came out, just beforehand, COVID happened. So that sort of uh, uh, muted some of the celebration. But uh, nonetheless, a book we're really proud of, Challenging the Right, Augmenting the Left, uh, Recasting Leftist Imagination. And it's from Fernwood. So Great title, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was a lot of work. I'm glad the title. Yeah, thanks. Um, we had a lot of arguments. But uh, the book, uh, it goes back to 2017, I guess. Even before, it seems like so long ago, even before Trump was elected, you know, Robert and some of the other editors, we'd been talking about our concerns, especially about a sort of resurgent right. Um, some of the, some of my sort of research has looked at the sort of rise of the right and online and so on. And so we were already really worried. And then Trump wins, and there was uh, what we thought were strains of ethno nationalism popping up everywhere. And it seemed like this turn to authoritarianism almost felt like at the time, like it was nigh. Maybe, it, maybe it wasn't quite that serious, but it certainly felt very serious then. And that inspired this 2017 conference where we brought together people and we wanted to try to figure out sort of like, why did we think this was happening and what the hell were we going to do about it? So what did you do? Well, we wrote a book, (laughs) a pretty classic academic response. We presented some ideas to each other, and then we wrote a book about it. But we tried to write a book that, you know, drew not so much from kind of left academics or something, but from kind of concrete left ideas about, uh, and this incredible sort of repository of left thought about how we can change the world. Um, But we wanted to, our authors to be really specific. We wanted to say, we think there's something particular about this moment and we want to solve the challenges of this moment. And are there things from the history of sort of left thought that we think help us make sense and solve the problems of this moment? But we didn't want to just sort of look back and admire wonderful left thought. We wanted to say, we think there's concrete problems that we need to address and we want to see what's there that might be useful to help us tackle these things. And I should clarify that uh, I think what you did in editing this book is more than I did. Uh, So thank you. And also what you've said about it is that it came from a particular moment, but I don't, well, either that moment is not yet gone or that even if it is, this book is still quite relevant. 
I think so. I, th I think there's a lot of really wonderful pieces that resonate all the more now. And I don't think just because uh, Donald Trump is no longer president that these things aren't relevant. Like, I think the trends towards uh, sort of emergent right and sort of uh, away from this kind of end of history liberalism, I, I mean, I think those are pretty clear at this point. And so our book is trying to address those, uh, as well as the interwoven environmental crisis uh, and the sort of long-standing challenges of mobilizing and organizing and building a left, um, a radical left alternative and a set of answers. And we have some great authors that so we can talk about them. I don't know uh, if we want to go through specifically or anything, but we should tell us about some of them. I mean, you mentioned the um, the environmental crisis. Maybe that's a place to start. I, I know you have, I think, three chapters, three se separate contributions about uh, eco-socialism? Yeah, well, so we have three separate chapters about eco-socialism. Uh, and then I would say there's a number of other chapters about which the environment really matters, but it, we didn't sort of think of them to be more specific about eco-socialism. But yeah, you know, we have chapters on eco-socialism, one of which looks, um, actually both of which uh, are focused on attempts to build eco-socialist sort of left movements in South America. Some looking at attempts on the, the sort of Brazilian left, and then as well looking at uh, the so-called pink tide. And actually asking some really, I think, challenging questions about why even these pink tide left movements struggled to maintain their commitments to sort of environmental justice and a lot of the indigenous movements that uh, are tied to that when they did actually win power. So not just saying, oh, we need to build this, but when the left has had opportunities, they've still struggled to sort of follow through on their commitments. And so we have two papers there that look at a lot of the constraints and, and that I think are like also really relevant to the Canadian context, but, but are also, I think, really interesting just in terms of how we think about not just, you know, saying we care about the environment, but how we rethink something like development. Um, and in our other paper, uh, or other chapter looks at sort of degrowth as a strategy for possibly trying to meet the sort of projected requirements of environmental justice, as opposed to just saying you stand for them, but not being sure how to pursue development otherwise. So the environment is one of the major themes, but there's also a few chapters about political parties uh, strategies around entering or not entering the state? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we tried to do in the book was, you know, we didn't want to have a book that pretended to have all the answers, and we didn't want to have a book that um, uh, full of contributors where everybody agreed. And so we tried to structure some of it around a debate about what are, what are, what are sort of the paths to building a left that might be able to win power and make some of these changes? And so obviously a lot of that has to do with whether or not there should be a political party. I mean, again, something that's been of central debate uh, on the left for a long time and sort of like, if not the political party, where else are we looking to sort of organize and build? And so, uh, you know, we have that debate among some of our, among some of our chapters. On, on the one hand, we have one chapter from someone who's been a longtime socialist party organizer, I guess. And in his chapter, um, Herman Rosenfeld, he talks at length about uh, his experiences, really kind of like a sober reflections on the successes, but more a lot of the failures that have been, that have sort of really kind of undermined the ability of the left to build uh, a political project here in Canada. And 
you know, in contrast to someone like Herman, who's talking about building these political projects, uh, we have papers from, or a chapter from uh, Lena Nasser. Uh, and, you know, she, she's not trying to say we don't need political parties, but she's also, I think, trying to help us focus to sort of, you know, find people where they are and figure out what matters to them and how the places where they're struggling might be really kind of vibrant places for organizing responses. So, you know, she's looking at, she's also focused on sort of things happening in Toronto, uh, but she's looking at then, you know, the harm prevention initiatives around uh, overdosing in Toronto. And she's looking at land trusts and sort of rental disputes and sort of saying, you know, these are places where there's lots of, there's lots of people who are actively involved in wanting to shape the way the world changes and the way Toronto works and the way we live and reproduce ourselves. And if we, sh we should find and work here even before we start thinking about these bigger things. Um, the main sort of challenges that I would say that we cover in the book are we try to think about adapting the history of left thought to the sort of current challenge. And those things are like, how do we engage with, the people who we think would want to be, you know, the working class or whoever else we think is going to be the foundation for this movement. But, you know, for the most part, our chapters are interested in how to engage with the working class without sort of trying to say, you know, sort of like condescend or assume there's false consciousness, try to figure out, well, like if our ideas are so popular, why does it seem like nobody wants to follow us on them? And so then we also have like a number of really interesting articles that are sort of more cultural that try to think, okay, like if we're living in this time when, you know, it seems like this sort of neoliberalism has sort of hollowed out, you know, like our relations with one another, like what we think of each other, you know, like what are like new sort of narratives and what are sort of like new visions that we can have that might pull us back together and build sort of new connections and establish or assert a different set of of relationships between people. And so we've got some great chapters on uh, that look at that. Well, so just to give people a sense of this, the scope, um, there are 20 chapters in total, right? And uh, yeah, not including, I guess, the intro and, and afterward. So there's lots in the book, and I think it'd be hard to, to get into specifics in, in several places. But I do want to get in, I, I think me and Matt wanted to get into the specifics of, of the chapter that you wrote, Julian, um, that's chapter 12, uh, Class Struggle in the Marketplace of Ideas Toward a Leftist Framework of Civil Liberties. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, so the idea, basic idea behind my chapter is just that sometimes we have this kind of sense that there's only maybe we have civil liberties or we don't, that, the, you know, it's like this binary thing. And I, I, I was just trying to make the case that, in fact, hidden inside the concept of civil liberties are different ideas about what those civil liberties should be. And we have a tendency right now to sort of think of them in terms of like individual liberties. And I'm trying to say we should think about collective civil liberties as well. So as opposed to just focusing on something like one person's freedom of speech, we think about the larger rights to assembly, to protest, to organize, and so on. And then I try to connect that a little bit to a history of left thinking about that, because there's actually a very kind of rich thought about it. So why don't you tell us, what, let's put some meat on that. Why don't you tell us a bit about what, what you consider to be the conventional understanding of civil liberties, and how would you like to redefine it? How would you like us to redefine civil liberties? 
Well, I sort of, in the chapter I show in the sort of American context and in the Canadian context, that early defenders of civil liberties were defending specifically the interests of labor. And in the U.S. context, they were worried about, you, you, know, you know, there was talk even 100 years ago about open shops and about the right to choice and about the right to be a part of a union or not, similar to the sort of language that we hear today. And uh, in Canada, there was a similar issue where we had civil liberties organizations that were specifically defending the right to, uh, were try specifically trying to actually defend labor from really ultimately what we would think of now as racist attacks by the Toronto police and the, the OPP who were specifically attacking mostly Eastern European organizers who wanted to build labor movements in Canada. And they were, you know, they deported thousands of people. They stopped allowing people from hosting organiz or hosting events in languages that weren't English. Uh, you know, they made these sorts of things illegal as an attempt to, because they were specifically attempting to destroy labor movements uh, in Canada and in the U.S. And the response of these early protectors of civil liberties were specifically trying to defend labor's right to organize and have collective rights to assemble, to organize, to protest, and so on. And so that, that's, you know, today I think when we see, you know, I try to draw the distinction in the chapter where, you know, today we sort of have what I think are sort of, I use a great Canadianism, a canard, uh, but these sort of like faux crises about speech on campuses where it's all about whether this one person can speak or not. And, I, you know, I'm more concerned about collective rights to assemble and protest and so on while understanding that, you know, the, the sort of individual component is also important. But I, I think we sort of focus on this narrow conception. And that really kind of reinforces the idea that we should all have a right to speak, but not realize that there's a whole bunch of other things that are tied to that, that we are losing. I think I recall reading, I, I, I did some background reading on you know, the sort of the history of uh, freedom of expression in the United States, uh, just to kind of situate your chapter. And now I can't remember, was it in yours or somewhere else that I saw that, well, the ACLU was originally uh, mobilizing and mobilizing around the right to agitate. Is that correct? Yeah, the right to picket and boycott, the right to secondary pickets and boycotts, and the, the right to agitate. Yeah, exactly. These were all, like, these were the issues that they to defend. And they were, you know, trying to extend civil liberties to do a lot more than just allow someone to speak, but allow them to take the sort of necessary economic and socioeconomic actions to actually build leverage and sort of compel people to make different decisions. Uh, I think that's the sort of the key component of the kind of collective right. That's really fascinating. Um, but I think we should, we should also talk about this idea. Of, I love that you, you use the term canard. Uh, you say that this, uh, the crisis around freedom of speech, especially on campuses, is a, is a right-wing canard. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. Well, before we do that, can we just clarify um, what the right to agitate is in this specific context that you, that you guys are talking about? The right of labor to agitate, right? And That's agitate right. for what? Well, I, I mean, th this was about a conflict over whether or not workplaces should be open shops where people have a choice, uh, whether they join the union or not, or whether or not they shouldn't be. Right. 
So, and so that was kind of the, the collective versus individual contest that was going on. And so the labor was that we should have this collective right, that we're all going to be a part of it, and that we should have this further right to agitate and sort of economically disrupt those who don't want to sort of play ball with the union. Right. Is, is right. that clear enough? Because like, I, I think the word agitate is kind of, it's not, I wouldn't call it propagandistic or something, but uh, it, it's not an analytical term. It's like a... Well, I just think it means it can mean so many things. It's just a very g- general term, and with the way you talk about it, it means something specific in that context. Um, yeah, because uh, here you say what they sought to protect was not the marketplace of ideas, but the right of labor to agitate. This is an entirely different conception of civil liberties, meant to secure fundamental economic and social change by asserting labor's absolute absolute right to picket, boycott, and strike. Moreover, these rights would be extended up and down the supply chain. The idea was that if a small manufacturer were underselling a unionized factory by underpaying employees, a secondary strike would allow the union to fight back. Uh, Their right to agitate would also allow other unions to prohibit their members from purchasing these non-unionized products, uh, a secondary boycott. Uh, So you get a sense of how extensive the the demands that were being made here are uh, and how specific they are to a specific, like to, to struggle. Right. Yeah. And, and in fact, if you look at it from the standpoint of individual civil liberties, uh, it, it's actually restricting them. Exactly. Yeah. And, and like, again, like if you actually go back and look at what they're talking about, like it's almost not different than the conversations you hear today about having choice, you know, I, and f- you know, I know all of you have been part of at least one union um, and maybe you've been part of other labor unions in your life. You're familiar with the appeals that some of your sort of union coworkers will make to you about, oh, well, I don't understand why I don't get to make my own choice and why I have to do these things when I know I'm a good employee and, and so on, right? It's become almost a common sense now that, that what I'm saying about collective rights is, seems impossible. But in fact, it was the precise reason behind civil liberties. Right. Uh, okay, so now to get back to what uh, Matt wanted us to to chat about there. Well, I guess the kind of the summary of what you're saying then is that there are there are different conceptions of civil liberties. Mm-hmm. There's the the one that the labor movement in the United States and Canada tried to promote, which emphasized the collective rights of working people, but it seems as though capital's version, which emphasizes the rights of individuals to contract freely in the marketplace is the one that has more or less won out, even if the labor movement continues to try to assert its right to collective bargaining, to strike, and so on. I guess in the collective consciousness overall, the, the capitalist version has won out. The, it's, it seems like that to me. Again, maybe I'm skewed. What do you two think? But it's, it seems to me that that's how it's happened. I live in a co-op right now. I just had a big argument with a number of the other people who live in the co-op about whether as a co-op we should collectively buy insurance. And many of the members hate the idea that our co-op would just spend our collective money on insurance for everyone, even though it means we'll all get cheaper rates and you will all have protection. So if a fire happens, you know, we don't have to like not have a place to live. And yet it's a conversation that we almost didn't win. Despite the fact that a co-op, the entire purpose of the co-op is to collectively pool your resources to lower (laughs) your costs. 
Exactly. And despite the fact that, you know, anywhere else in the neighborhood I live in in Toronto, you would spend $1,000 more a month. Like there's a tangible result to living in this co-op. And yet many people hated the idea that we would have this collective insurance. So uh, this speaks in our book. We have a whole section that tries to deal with uh, the sort of like cultural elements that have led us to believe these things to be common sense. And one of the big, I wouldn't say the inspiration, but one of the things we were so concerned about was, you know, when leading up to Trump's win and the basis of part of the inspiration for the book was this, you know, hearing from people who work at Breitbart and so on, who would be saying things like, oh, well, we understand that politics is sort of like downriver from culture. So if we find a way to change the culture, then we'll find a way to change the politics. And that seemed at the time to be a successful way uh, to sort of approach uh, achieving the social transformation that you desire. So as much as I like your framing as, and as much as I find it really fascinating, it's a really interesting framing. There's still a part of me that is quite sympathetic to the individualistic conception of civil liberties and the right to an individual's freedom of speech. So I want to talk a bit about, I think you're right to say that far right forces are using this as a canard, but let's talk about the left response. So let's say uh, Milo Yiannopoulos is well i mean he's he's passe now who's someone else that we can talk about (laughs) ben shapiro is he still around ben shapiro uh is planning to give a talk on york university's campus what should the left response be i mean i don't know i don't feel comfortable prescribing a response to everybody else i mean what i would say is that if a whole bunch of people showed up to stop him from from speaking my take would be they are also expressing themselves. And so in a way, if we're sort of going to say, oh, you're, you're not allowed to interrupt, you're not, you're not allowed to disrupt, you're not allowed to be part of this, it makes me nervous to say, well, we have to stop doing that. Because at the same time that we're saying that, you know, Stephen Harper and then Jason Kenney are also passing legislation that makes any kind of protest or disruption of critical infrastructure criminalized. And so I'm hesitant to try to sort of criminalize you know, collective action like that. But don't, aren't those different things? I mean, I wouldn't the left benefit from fighting for a universal right to free speech, whether that's the free speech that Ben Shapiro has or, you know, anti uh, oil sands protesters or Palestine solidarity activists have. So, I mean, do you, like, we could have a whole conversation about like, what is the point of free speech for you, Umer? Like, is that the place, like, is it the, at the Ben Shapiro conference where you're going to change everybody's mind and everybody's going to be a socialist? I don't know what you mean. <laughs> well, I just mean, like, why do we need freedom of speech? Uh, I think we need freedom of speech because it, it would be awful to restrict people's right to say what they think. But I, I, I mean, like... like publicly or private? Like, do you think we could restrict people's abilities to say what they think privately? Uh, I mean, to an extent, but even publicly, I think it's, it's not the right thing to do. I mean, uh, you know, fundamentally, like uh, as someone who believes in expanding the realms of freedom for humanity, I think that human beings should have the, the right to believe what they want and to say what they believe. I think that 
is is a fundamental right that uh, that all human beings should have irrespective of what they think irrespective of you know whether they what they think is uh, something i agree with or 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 what they think is is something that i find uh, just absolutely abhorrent so, so like I, I i should be clear like i mean i i think i completely agree for me though the question is like how do you create you know because i assume i was asking that question in part we want free speech because we want to be able to try to compel people using our evidence-based arguments that the positions we hold about the way society should be changed are true, you know, and we should work and they should come be part of a project that tries to change those things. So that's why we think speech matters. Um, Like I'm worried that as the sort of world that we live in finds ways to just transform things like our public spheres and our newspapers and our, academic institutions and our education systems, our media systems and so on, that it's creating this ecosystem where free speech has been weaponized to the point where by having free speech, it's undermined and destroyed. And so I want to live in this world where the realms of freedom are extended, but how do you get there in a world where those things are weaponized and full of bad faith actors who don't want that to happen? To my mind, I often wonder if the, well, I don't wonder. I think, I think I know. I think that those bad faith actors like the Milo Yiannopoulos, I think that they're weaponizing free speech in a way, they're, tr- they're goading the left. They're trying to goad campus activists. And if we didn't respond in the ways that we often do, we wouldn't we wouldn't even know about Milo Yiannopoulos if it weren't for the the reaction to him so i th- I, I often feel like when we organize these counter protests we're playing into their hands we're giving them exactly what they want i i would tend to agree with you whether or not putting aside whether or not responding is the right question i think it's definitely the strategy to purposely generate outrage and frustration often just to you know sell books or build publicity or push a political message um but yeah i, I couldn't agree more delegitimate de- uh, campus activists as well i think i mean i think i think they they've they've yeah. perfected a way of making campus activists look intolerant foolish out of touch and so on i think that's that's the the big concern for me in kind of because i think you do in your your strat in the what is to be done part of your essay you kind of do say like it's okay for us to hold counter rallies against these people but i wonder if i wonder if that's the right choice I, I mean, like, again, I, I would feel uncomfortable saying you shouldn't have a counter rally. And sometimes when these activists are out there, you, you know, on the one hand, they are trying to uh, goad people into a response. But I think they're also trying to find like-minded people. So, you know, I, I don't think there's, I don't think having a response is wrong. You know, I don't think the people who went to sort of hand out pamphlets and talk to people attending that Jordan Peterson debate. I don't think they were wrong to do that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we want to be able to have free speech and say things so that when we disagree with people, we can try to explain to them why we think they're wrong and why they shouldn't believe that anymore. Absolutely. I think you're right. I mean, I think, but I think the question is what tactics in those situations are appropriate. 
the tactical question is important. So I would have no problem with people handing out pamphlets as to why Jordan Peterson is not, you know, this star academic or intellectual that people think he is and his, his ideas are harmful to other people. But I guess... Well, Matt, can I just jump in there too? Because like, sure. like when you're talking about tactics, right? Like the thing, again, that worries me about the ways in which free speech is being weaponized is that, you know, what we're seeing is that, you know, people are mobilizing armies of bots online that flood disinformation so that when you want to go look for a piece of information that might be true, it becomes very difficult to spot the differences because there have been other, you know, there are other political forces that organize to try to purposely sow confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's a, that's a strategy or to use this network of trolls and bots to assault or assaults the wrong word, but harass to the point where people no longer want to participate. Those are, these are strategies that are actively being used to leverage free speech to destroy it for other people. And so what strategically is the right decision so that we can get to this point where that sort of behavior is easy to spot, that it doesn't, you know, we don't let it work. You know, how do we sort of, but, you know, I don't know, I, I don't know if we've figured out yet what the, how to deal with that problem. To me, my frame would be to say, like, how do we optimize a sort of public sphere so that we get the most voices, maybe some robust debate, lots of access to information so that, you know, we can achieve what we had previously sort of talked about as kind of like freedoms we would like to see. I'm just not convinced unfettered free speech will lead to that in a highly unequal society. And I also think it's really complicated to figure out how to regulate or change that in a country like Canada, where we're relying on non-Canadian tech companies to provide us with these mediums that, and we can't necessarily nationalize or otherwise take control of them. And they're not easy to sort of just replace with an alternative. You know, there's all kinds of machinations behind whatever (laughs) <laughs> you know, the the news we read and so on. Uh, that just makes me believe that the way it's currently organized w- will not lead to some sort of ideal free speech environment. I think there's two things that came to my mind as I was listening to what Julian was saying. And, and one of them is that even, you know, the most ardent free speech absolutist would not would not say that freedom of speech contains within it the right to incite violence against either individuals or identifiable groups. That's the first thing. Uh, and then the second thing would be, I mean, this, I, I feel like uh, if, if we follow Julian, your line of thinking to its logical conclusion, it's just so authoritarian. It's, you know, who, what entity has the right to decide what thoughts are valid and are allowed to be heard does is does freedom of speech only protect the right to say things that are empirically verifiable do people not have the right to believe in in fanciful conspiratorial notions that are bogus and bullshit i mean so how do you who has the right to decide what can and can't be heard Uh, yeah I, i i mean i think there's i don't think those questions are always as difficult as you think they are, because um, I agree, the circulation of um, distrust 
of vaccinations is one thing. Uh, certainly, you know, I, uh, I, I, I don't like to hear it if it's not unsubstantiated or if it's unsubstantiated, but, you know, there might be perfectly good reasons to be critical of vaccinations. And if those start disappearing from Twitter or something, that's, that's concerning. I mean, I, I, I agree. Like, I, I think you're right. Most free speech defenders aren't free speech maximalists, you know, and they don't just want anybody to be able to say whatever they want, whenever they want without consequences. And, and so I think like clearly harassing language, like, I, I mean, I'm not going to read them out loud, but one of uh, a journalist who I follow in Canada a lot is Nora Loretto. And she had a tweet that uh, many people consider to be very offensive. It was taken totally out of context, circulated. And that's generated just like huge, like waves of harassment against her. And, you know, like, I, I, like if they're just sort of like calling her the most despicable names or threatening to injure somebody or their family, I, I mean, like, it's pretty obvious that that's not, like we don't our our discourse about how we should change the world does not require that sort of speech obviously and and i recognizing that at the point we might want to say you know the capitalist class sure takes a lot for themselves they're kind of greedy um or something and you know i don't want that to be offensive but i think we can find a line between criticisms of those in power and the deliberate fanning of waves of harassment threatening somebody's life and autonomy and whatever you know like i think we can all agree that some of that is like obviously wrong and it's not authoritarian to say we shouldn't allow this or no one's going to want to have a public persona and still protecting our right to have robust conversations about challenging issues well since you brought it up the vaccine issue i mean should people be able to spread misinformation about vaccines or should the state step in and punish people who are willfully misleading people about the potential negative effects of of vaccines? Yeah, I I think the state should step in at times, you know, and not just about vaccines. Like it was purposely incorrect science done to show that certain opiates weren't as addictive as it turns out they were. Like those people should be prosecuted because they purposely misled the public and have created a huge crisis of... Isn't that kind of different, though? Because, I mean, those people had uh, material... I mean, they were selling something. So I'm just talking about, let's just say there's a guy, my neighbor, decides that he doesn't like the ideas of vaccines, and so he wants to start tweeting about how bad they are. Should the state step in there? Because I feel like that's a little bit different from the, you know, the manufacturers of opioids who willfully sure. lied about their their product yeah okay you know, it, they, those they, they are slightly different things uh and i i don't know it gets tricky right like if is this person a head of state uh, then maybe they shouldn't be but also like maybe there's good reasons to be skeptical of vaccinations and like just because a community of vaccine deniers linked it to autism it doesn't mean that there might be other groups of people who have all kinds of reasons to be critical of vaccinations. So yeah, I mean, you have to allow space for that, I would say. And so I guess it gets, it's a little murkier there. How do you draw the line? But to me, if like people are intentionally pushing misinformation or disinformation in order to make it harder to know the truth about things that are happening in the world, then yeah, I'm, I think that could be punishable. Okay. So who do you think the state is going to come after if you 
allow it to go after people for speech acts. Who does it already come after? Yeah, well, exactly. Um, so, yeah, that it's concerning that the state is going to come after certain people. But do, does that mean that we should assume that the state can never do, can, can never play an important role here? And like, is it even the state that's really coming after people? Right now, we have mostly corporate people who are coming after. We have corporate interests that are denying platforms to people. I don't know that we do. We might also have state, but in Canada and the US, it's mostly corporate. Well, I mean, you gave the... Uh, gave the example of uh, in Alberta where, you know, there's efforts to restrict protest against uh, the oil sands. There's also, is it in both in Alberta and Ontario now? You can't, um, animal rights uh, activists can't, uh, can't necessarily release information about if they sneak onto a factory farm or something and, and, uh, and show some, uh, some of the cruel practices that that's uh, potentially criminal activity. Uh, so those kinds of things are uh, are things where the state already steps in, right? I was reading a, a, a really good one yesterday on Vox. Is it Christine Nome, the governor of South Dakota or North Dakota? One of those Dakotas. Recently, the, the legislature there passed a law that teachers and university professors are not allowed to teach divisive concepts or something along these lines or ideological concepts in history. And yet, Christy Noem wants the history courses in South Dakota to teach that the United States is a special nation. <laughs> yeah, we, we live in this, like, on the one hand, that's what I mean, we're not dealing with good faith actors who are trying to come up with policies that are going to lead to a more expression positive free speech environment or something. They're not good faith actors. And, uh, you know, Umer, like to your question, it, it's part of why I think, well, one, I don't know that the left is going to win by owning Twitter. Like, I, I mean, I don't think that's really a, an important part of the war of position here. And why sometimes I think the collective rights to organize and protest in space and assemble as groups and organize is something worth prioritizing over, you know, whether or not worrying too much about whether or not the post I made that was critical of the vaccine deployment by the liberal government is going to be deleted on Facebook or not. But you know, like as the other thing I was saying earlier too, you know, like the situation right now is, is concerning, you know, like um, we're seeing our freedoms foreclosed in many ways. We're seeing a rise in a, an ascendance of the right wing, you know, to some of the conversations we've had earlier, you, you know, in the book, there's, you know, essentially what the argument that's being made throughout the whole book is that the capitalist crisis has led to this rise in the right. And one of the things that the right is really good at is if we live in this world, which I think is true, where capitalism has exploited all that is valuable in our societies and sort of transformed them into things that are for profit and no longer have their value to us. One of the things that's happened is our relationships with one another. And so all of this is kind of deteriorating, you know, we're more disconnected. And I think the right has a bunch of much easier narratives and stories to tell to sort of unite certain segments of the population on behalf of political projects. And I think on the left, we have to tell like a lot more complex of a story. Um, and we don't have the same sort of myths, whether they're sort of nationalist or like ethno-nationalist or racist and so on, uh, sort of patriarchal. We don't want to necessarily, we know we don't want to draw on those as our foundation for sort of uniting people in a vision that's new. 
So I think because of that, we see social media and all these other places being very effectively mobilized because the narrative that the you know, right-wing narratives are a lot simpler. And so we just see a lot more action with those. I wonder how different your book would be had you written or had you edited it, co-edited it um, in, in 2020, early 2021, as opposed to 2017 to 2019 or whatever. And, and kind of getting to your point, I, I feel like in the last few days, we have seen that the right might not be, might not have the story, or at least the right story can be neutralized. And I'm referring to the passage of the Biden stimulus bill, which was overwhelmingly popular, uh, which has, in some ways, I think, totally redefined or has overcome that sort of right-wing Reaganite government is the problem discourse that's been in place the last 40 years. Uh, And it seems to me like the right, all they have left now in this moment is culture war. That's it. That's all they've got. So I wonder, do you think the book would be different if you had written it in early 2021? I mean, I think that's a wonderful question. One of the things that I often worry about when it comes to the environment and what I was worrying a lot about when it came to COVID and even when it came to Trump being reelected was that like, it wouldn't take much right now for people on the right to realize we can tell a story about saving the world from the environment or from environmental catastrophe and redistributing resources to the right people and make sure the wrong people don't get them. You know, that's like a very easy story to tell. And I thought, you know, I, I was worried Trump was, was going to say, you know, I could shift just a little bit and just give a few things to the American people. Uh, maybe that narrative isn't as easy for the right to deploy as I thought it was. But I mean, one of the themes that we sort of point to in the book that I think is really important still today is this rise in sort of nationalist thinking. And I, and I think that would be one thing we would probably spend even more time talking about if we were to do this book. But maybe we would also be less concerned that the right had as compelling a story to tell as I was worried they might figure out how to tell. Right. Yeah, I don't want to suggest that Trumpism or the right has gone away. But it, I don't know, it's just a thought that occurred to me over the last couple of days. It seems like all they have left now, especially because the Republican Party is just so ridiculous when it comes to fiscal policy. I mean, just think if, if Trump had like spent money on infrastructure or something, I mean, his, his popularity would have been overwhelming, I think, but he was just incapable of that. And so it just seems like all they've got left is the culture war stuff. Although I, sometimes I wonder, is it all that they have left because in so many other ways, the Democrats have more or less the same fiscal policy? I mean, I guess the Biden thing <laughs> we're hoping is the first step away from uh, the continued sort of internationalization of labor markets and so on. And we're going to maybe see some return to trade barriers and nurturing domestic labor markets. And that could be a good thing. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's too early to say, and we're, I guess, I don't know if, if we're allowed to go this far off topic, but it does seem a little bit different from, you know, that brief spurt of Keynesianism after the 2008 crisis where Obama came in and he had this whole, oh, I've got to get the Republicans on board and they just scuttled it. I mean, I guess it seems like the Democrats have learned their lesson, like 
fuck these Yahoo Republicans, get money to the, get money to the people. That's kind of the path forward, I think. But do, but do you think that actually, I mean, there's lots of concern, like, you know, Biden essentially, according to many, negotiated against himself and continued to reduce the amount that they were going to pay out. And I keep worrying, like the second in Canada that COVID is officially over, you know, any premier who's ever wanted an austerity agenda yeah. is going to have an easy foundation to say, okay, now screw it, I'm cutting everything. You know, we're already seeing it in Manitoba. Uh, there's been major layoffs at universities. They've been big layoffs in the school division. They're talking about privatizing elements of health, you know? And, and so like, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not ready to say, oh, I think we're heading into a new era of pro- sort of Keynesian progressivism or something. No, also, I wouldn't think that would be sufficient, but I, I would be happy if we went a little bit that way. You know, I think one of the great pieces that we have uh, in the book looks at sort of um, uh, by Sidef and Aparna. So I wanted to make sure I got their names. Sidef and Aparna write this amazing piece showing the rise of authoritarianism in Turkey and India. And there they sort of point to how effective stories of the past in the case of India as a sort of Hindu nationalism, in the case of Turkey, almost a sort of reimagination of the the days of the Ottoman Empire and how they've used these kind of like appeals to this wonderful past to sort of paper paper over the fact that inequality's gotten even worse and it's really working for some people and this sort of nationalism helps to try to keep people who are actually mostly not doing better under this uh, on board as part of the project um and i like again i i just think I think our future is a is one dominated by nationalism. I hope to be wrong, but it, it seems to be back in a really bad way. And I don't know, I don't know where it's going to end up. Julian, where can people find a copy of your book? You can find a copy of our book on the Fernwood website. Uh, I would recommend going there. I know if you're in the West End of Toronto, they did have some copies that not another. Uh, oh my God, I'm going to get the name wrong. Not another bookstore? Not, not another, another bookstore? No. The one on Roncesvalles? Yeah, yeah. Not another story. Not another story on Roncesvalles. Wait, no, I've definitely got the name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> another story bookshop. Another there story. we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, that's a really bad name for a, <laughs> a bookstore. <laughs> not another book. <laughs> good thing, yeah, not another book. It's a good thing they didn't pick it. Yeah. Uh, they did have some copies there. I'm not sure if they still do. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Oats for Breakfast. Remember to subscribe if you haven't done so yet. You can subscribe on any podcast app of your choice. Also remember that you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you again soon. Bye.